0: Let's turn to Psalm 22 as we continue our exposition, sort of, through this book, or excuse me, through this psalm. I'm going to do what I've done uh, in the past, so this is not an unusual thing. But I'm going to uh, divide this sermon up into two parts. One will be now, and then next, in the next hour we'll pick it up and hopefully finish Uh, Our passage there in verse 11 but in this hour there are some things I want to lay out and I know that you already know these things I'm sure you're well persuaded of them but as we'll talk about here in a moment we need to have these things in our minds as we think through these things so I want to read verses 1 down through verse 21 and these of course deal with the suffering of our Lord on the cross. The, the remainder of the ver, uh, psalm will deal with some matters in regards to it, but in a little different way. Uh, but for this, let's read verses one down through verse 21. Psalm 22. To the chief musician upon Ajaleth Shehar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered, they trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gape upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Verse 11 will be what we were going to look at today. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help I said I'll try this morning to open up verse 11 not only in this hour but in the hour to come and in doing so it will be well to remember some things in regards to this psalm as we're about halfway through the aspect of his sufferings at this point. So these are some things as I said I know you know but we need to keep them in mind as we continue our exposition through this uh, not only this verse but in what will be following after this. So one of the things, and there are several here, I have about ten, and then we'll get into a little bit of the verse here a little bit later. But one of the things, these are not in any kind of special order, but just as I was uh, thinking and meditating upon this passage. The first is that the person of this psalm is Jesus Christ. As we read this, we should understand, and I know you do, and I hope you understand by now and believe this, that it is Christ who is speaking these very words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. The second thing is that this psalm is a prophecy regarding the Lord in the time and the part of what we often call his humiliation. This would be the time in which he humbles himself and comes into this world and lives as a man suffering all the hardships of, of living in a fallen world and such. And this particular aspect and timing of this is while, he, of course, he is upon the cross. This is when he is suffering uh, there on the cross, on the crucifixion, when the Lord Jesus there is dying for the sins of his people. And the marvelous thing about this, of course, is that this is, has been written a thousand years before this actually transpired. So a thousand years later, then we find the Lord Jesus... And around 33 AD or so, hanging there upon the cross. And David here is writing at about 1000 uh, BC. I say 33 AD is what I meant to say if I said something else. The third thing is that it regards our Lord as he it speaks of him and his person as he is the God man. So it's not just a man hanging here, and it's not just God hanging here, it's God who is united with human flesh he's he's here in his human nature as well and this is a very important point because none of this would have been happening if it was just God hanging here because if I understand the scriptures correctly and my theology I hope is a little bit correct here is that God can't suffer and so in order for Jesus to go through these things to suffer he had to be united then to with a human nature uh, to in order to suffer and I know there's a big argument about all that, but that's just what I hold to. And if you hold to something different, that's your business, I suppose. But we, I believe that this is God hanging here who is united in human flesh so that he might, for one of the reasons, so that he might suffer on the behalf of his people. So that's an important point that we realize this is the God-man hanging here in order for him to suffer for his people. The fourth thing is that his sufferings on the cross, which this records for us, are not for his own sins, but for sins of others. The reason why these are not for his own sins, their suffering, is because he had none. He, he never sinned. The scripture tells us, for instance, he had made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousnesses of God in him. So He's not hanging here because he was the great transgressor. That's not the case at all. But it's for the sins of his elect that our Lord Jesus is hanging here. And it is for their sins only. That is, it's only for the elect that our Lord Jesus is going through all this. Because, of course, our sins then were imputed to him. So his sufferings then were for the sins of his people... As they were imputed, or as we say, as they were laid upon him. Isaiah, the prophet tells us this, But he was wounded for our transgressions. <clears throat> he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then a couple of verses later, he says he was taken from prison and from judgment and who shall declare his generation for he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. So the scriptures are very plain in the fact that this is not any doings of our Lord himself because of his any any transgressions or sins of his own, but he was here because of the sins of his people being accounted or laid upon him. He was the one who bore our iniquities. He was the one who carried our sins. He bore the sins of many, he says. The fifth thing is that his sufferings and death were to make an atonement for sin. Not only did he take our sins upon him, but the purpose of that was to cover or to uh, bring forgiveness of sin to us, it was to bring that pardon. And so from this, then, all this work that he's doing is to redeem us from our sins and from the guilt and from the condemnation of the law, which, of course, we deserved. We deserved the, uh, the agonies of the cross and the hell that he went through there on the cross. I don't say that blasphemously or using that lightly, but he bore our punishment there on the cross They were for us and not for his own. the next thing we ought to keep in mind is that his sufferings and death were given as a complete and a whole satisfaction for sin to God. In other words, when he did this, there was not anything else left to be done. We didn't somehow come along and then make up what that wasn't done on the cross by him. We didn't complete it. This was something that he made a full and complete and a whole satisfaction of the cross on the cross there these uh, 2,000 years ago. And thus then Christ truly is, the propitiation for our sins. So don't think here that anything that we can do adds to the merits of Christ. It can't and it will not. This, these sufferings were not in vain. And they were complete and whole. They're efficacious. In other words, they're going to they're do what they were meant to do. Another thing as we think about this psalm is that his sufferings, which he bore, were from both God and from man. You know, as we look at this, we may say, well, this is just because of the sufferings of what man brings upon him. And of course, there would be a lot of truth to that. But it's not just the sufferings that man imposed upon him, but also it was God himself who punished him. It is true. It was by wicked hands that he was taken, as Peter says, and was crucified. But it was also true that it pleased God to... Give him as a sacrifice for sin, as well as to bruise him there upon the cross. Isaiah 53 and verse 11 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to make his soul an offering for sin. You see, that was God's doing in it. And that forsaking him upon there, and like as we read in verse 1, where Christ cries out, My God, my God, hast thou forsaken me? That was part and parcel of God's punishment upon him. And what all he may have went through, again, the scripture is not giving us that kind of information, but if we, we have to know that it was something that was causing the complete satisfaction of God in order to do it. He was pleased to do it, in fact. The eighth thing that we can understand about this, and we ought to, is as he was truly man in his person, he was then subject to the temptations that, would, that man would experience in the face of such trials and adversities that he was suffering. Now, we know that he didn't sin through any of this. And in those temptations that he faced, he did not t- partake of it because there was nothing in him that would make him want to do it. But they were still, as it were, before him. He still had to, as we would say, win the battle in this. So he was a man, and as so, he would be tempted in all points such as we are in such circumstances, save without sin. And that's why we see some of these words that are given here. They're an expression of that very thing that he's working through these temptations just as any of us would. Again, yet without sin. That would mean such things as doubts were coming before him. There were fears. There were questionings. I mean, Look at verse 1. There's two questions right there. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That would be the questions we would normally say and we do say in such times of adversities and trials and sorrows and hurts and pains. Why have you abandoned me? There's no sin in that. Now we can sin in it, but there is no sin in it here with our Lord Jesus. So all those kind of things that would be common to us He went through, and again, that was another reason why he had to be man here upon the cross. But in saying that again, I want you to understand, he did not sin in any of this. And then ninthly, all of this, his sufferings and his death, the accomplishments of it, what it did accomplish was foretold in scripture. Um, as we read this, we know that this is Scripture and we know that this was a prophecy. But there were things given to us or given to the Jews, for instance, in the law of God back in the books of Moses that were teaching this very thing. That there was to be this great sacrifice for sin. So all of this was not a, a mystery to God or a mystery to the people of God who were converted at this time. Because all of this was accomplished in accordance to the Scripture. And there again, this is why as we read the Gospel accounts, we see so many verses taken from this uh, psalm relating to the crucifixion of Christ. And then the last thing as we think about this, all of this, all the things that we've said, was in accordance with God's divine plan, His decree, or if you call it, his purpose. This was something God, in reality, initiated. And he didn't initiate it uh, before Psalm, I mean, in Psalm 21, and then we get to Psalm 22 and we find out, oh, this is what he's doing now. This is not it. This was something that was planned and purposed before the foundation of the world. You know, the Rook of Revelation talks about him as being the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So in the mind of God, this was something that he had planned, he had purposed. It was all according to the predeterminate counsel of God. And think about this then. If that be so, and it is, our Lord from all eternity, that is the Lord Jesus, knew that this was going to take place because he was part of the plan itself. He was not only part of the plan, he was one of the makers of the plan as the Trinity got together and planned all of this. But this was something he knew. He knew it in eternity past. He knew it when he founded the earth. He knew it through the days of Moses. He knew it all the way up to David's time. And then when he comes into this world in his human nature, he knew it then. And those 33 years as it leads up to this point of his crucifixion, that was still something he knew. And he did it anyway. He knew the great sufferings and pain. He knew all it. Now, he never experienced it as far as his person was concerned, but he knew that it was going to take place. Let's think of you and I. If we knew that some terrible agony and trial was going to take place next week we would try i would think to avoid that would we not we would think nah i'm hoping i could get this week over with without having to do this i would do anything to get out from under being crucified like this but yet not our lord he plowed through this knowing this was going to take place and this is why for instance, in Hebrews 12, we can read these words here. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, he knew all of that. And yet, he did it anyway. And he did it willingly. He was like a lamb. Take it to the slot. This was something that was purposed and planned, and he knew about it. Amazing, isn't it? Now, these are some just a, some of the few things, uh, biblical facts, that truths, that are should be in our mind as we work through these passages, and I hope and as you reflect back on some of the things that we've looked at, these uh, ten verses so far, that, you know, Try to plug that in as well, because these things are necessary to at least comprehend or try to comprehend <laughs> as we study out these passages. Now, uh, there are probably some objections to what I've just said, and let me just give you a couple here, and let me try to answer them. Someone may say, well, much of this is new to me. You know, I really did never think of it in this light. Right? In fact, I've never even possibly thought many of those things at all. And it's, it, and you may say, well, it's difficult to to try to comprehend. It's difficult to, to learn these things. And my answer to that is, well, that may be so, that this may be new to you. You may not have never heard it. Or you may never have sat under this kind of preaching and being familiar with these kind of things. But here's your opportunity now. You're able to hear these things. You're able to be. <clears throat> your mind is being informed by these things. What's well, a good thing? It's not a bad thing. And yes, sometimes these are difficult things to kind of grasp and lay hold on. But here again, you have the opportunity now to listen and to learn. So that's the answer to that objection that someone may have in their mind. This is all too new. Well, everything's new to people when they first come upon it. So it's not anything bad in and of itself. You're learning, and that's a good thing. Another objection is this. One may say, well, I know all this already. Why are you wasting my time? Why are you going over this again when probably quite a few here may know this already, and especially me? Why are you wasting, you know, we think of it individually, why are you wasting my time on that? Well, what's my answer to such a question or an objection as that? Well, it's fourfold, actually. There are four things I would say about that kind of thinking. The first is this, perhaps it's true. And if that is so that you already have these under your belt and you've been thinking through these things as we've been preaching it and it's not left your mind and you, you you're thinking, yeah this is this is what it's about. You know what? this is opportunity then to bless God for that. Bless God that you know those things. be thankful that God has from his word showed you these great and these marvelous teachings, from scripture rather than being just old hat to you you ought to be thankful that god has revealed them to you and thankful that you're sitting under a ministry that proclaims these things and not only who proclaims these things i'm here to tell you today and i don't say this in any boasting bragging way but i believe it Some preachers get up and they preach it because this is what they think they got to teach and preach. That's not the case with me. I believe this. I believe this is the teaching from God's word. And I believe this is God's word. Ain't nobody, sorry for my grammar, there isn't anyone who is going to convince me otherwise by the grace of God. So you sitting under something that I literally believe, be thankful for that. Rather than bored with it, be thankful about it. Secondly, answer to that, is none of us here this morning, including me, know all that we ought to know regarding these grand and great doctrines. None of us. None of us. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to. To know, So we may sit there thinking smugly, oh boy, I know this stuff. I could tell you every verse there that you're talking about. I could quote them, but you still don't know all that you ought to know. There's always a place for the Christian to learn. And again, I say that about me. I have to plow through these things as well in my study in order to preach them. They just don't come to my mind. I have to labor over them because I don't know them as I ought to know. The third answer to that kind of objection is, even if we are well-versed in these things, it's always good and it's always needful to be reminded of them over and over again. We'll never in this life get to the place where we do not need to hear the gospel truths set before us as Christians, and as I pointed out the other evening at the last time, maybe you I know, last maybe time before at the rescue mission, we were preaching through Romans there about Paul preaching to them or writing to them about the the very central things of the gospel, especially faith that God imputes righteousness without works, and. He's telling that to people who already know that. He's not writing something new to these saints at Rome. He's telling them things that they had already knew and they had already received, or they would not have been saints. So there is a place in the Christian life when we need to continue to hear those basic doctrines of the truth. It's not to say we're not to go on. We are. But the gospel is still good news to us, and it ought to be. The fourth thing about this is be patient in listening as there are others, perhaps, who do not know these things. And how are they going to learn if they don't hear them? And so you may sit here being frustrated, thinking we need to move on. But what about that dear saint that hasn't grasped it as well as you have? Don't you think that person needs to have the time for these things to sink in as well and to be, to be studied and, and honed just as you have had it done to you? And they have to learn these things just as you did at one time. You know, you didn't become a John Calvin overnight, did you? Or a John Gill? Now, did you? No. took time, didn't it? Not that any of us get to probably to those places at all. So these are some things that we need to keep in mind as we plow through this. And I do. When I think about these things as i'm preaching or writing on these things these are things that go through my mind because they're needful and they're helpful and they're just wonderful truths anyway so let's look at verse 11 in light of what we just said he says here be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help as we've noted in what we've just got through saying, these words are spoken in the midst of our Lord's great sufferings as he's bearing the sins of his people, of bearing our sins at this time. How this must have been a very terrible thing for him to experience. As you remember, he's the sinless Son of God. He was sinless, obviously, in His Godhood, His divinity, and He was sinless also in His person as a man. He never sinned, never had any sinful thoughts, any sinful inclinations, any of those things like we do constantly. But not our Lord. So here He has the great burden of our sins laid upon Him. And then... He has the condemnation of those sins laid on Him as well. And He's suffering and He's bearing and upholding under these terrible things. And as He's experiencing this punishment of man as well as God upon Him, and as God, you remember the context here is that God has forsaken Him. He feels, as we read there in verse 1 and in verse 2, that He... God has turned his back upon him. And he cries out and God's not hearing him. God's not answering him. And though he's been faithful in praying this, he's not heard. He says in those verse 2, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season and am not silent. Here his heavenly father has, as it were, rejected him. And he's not getting any help from him at this point, as he's perceiving it here as man. There's no help here. And God, as we're already saying, he's far from hearing him. He's far from answering his petitions. And never before has that ever happened. Ever. As we think about Christ and his divinity down back in eternity past, God uh, God the Father and God the Son had that glorious relationship. And all through the time of the Old Testament period during after creation, we see that that would have been the same as well. Up to 33 years of his life, he was enjoying that fellowship between him and his Father. But now on the cross, that's been broken. This is something... He's never experienced before. And not only that, in the context as we see as well, he's hearing and knowing what they're saying out there in the crowds. He's hearing the mocking and the, and the scorning. He's also not only hearing it, but as we see from the text or context as well, he's watching their reaction. Look what he says in verse 7. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying. So as he's hanging there, he can look out and he sees them. Not only knowing what they say, but he sees their reaction, their facial reactions. Their body language, as he says. And it's not one of embracing him, it's one of rejection. It's one of mocking and scorning. They're laughing at him. They're shaking their head in derision at him. And it's under such great agonies and temptations and all these things you see are besetting him. They're right there. And he calls to God affirming to him his that, you know, here again, in the context, his father has been watching over him all through his life, even from very birth. He had that special providential care upon his son, as we've talked about. And our Lord Jesus, as we see in the previous verses, that he, he calls upon God to affirm all that. You've been with me from the womb, outside of the womb. You've had your watchful eye and careful eye upon me. And then verse 11, he sets forth this petition here. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. So there's the context. Hang there alone. And he says, there's none to help. This is God here on the cross. The God man. And he says, there is none to help. Let's uh, continue this in the next hour and we'll look at some things in regards to the remainder of the text. May God bless that to us.